0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I don't
0: know how to introduce this, other than just to tell you I'm going to traffic court. Because a few weeks ago, I was pulled over by a uh, local gendarme in an SUV, unmarked, of course. And I I don't know how many lights they had, but it was in the low 100s. And uh, he pulled me over and asked for my driver's license, asked me if I owned the car that I was driving, and, and said that I'd coasted three times. He said, coasted through a stop sign. I know I didn't coast through the stop sign. I know I didn't roll through the stop sign. I know I stopped at the stop sign. And I was very respectful to the police officer. And frankly, he was very courteous to me. But I said, do you have it on video? I want to see it. He said, no, I don't. So I said, I can challenge this, right? And he said, yes, you can. So I've decided I'm going to court. I do not have on my record, on my driving record, even one incident of going through a stop sign. My driving record is clean. Haven't had a moving offense, moving violation for over 20 odd years. But this officer says I went through the stop sign and I'm going to fight him on that. I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to go to court. And uh, the gentleman I'm going to talk to is Doug Morton. And Doug is a former, it's a retired police officer from London, Ontario, and he's also a paralegal in in the province of Ontario. And I guess well, I'll, I'll just, I'll just spill the beans. Doug is going to represent me in, uh, in in traffic court. So, Doug, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. You don't know what you can yourself into. <laughs> well,
2: thanks, Roy, and it's um, a pleasure to speak with you. And hello to your audience.
0: Well, you know, I uh, look. Let me, let me first of all say to you that when this all began, I had no idea why I was being stopped. I wasn't even sure that the police officer was stopping me until he stayed behind me and all these lights were flashing. I thought, well, it probably is me. I absolutely am certain I stopped at that stop sign. I'm absolutely certain. So this is why I want to take it to traffic court. Um, what are the chances? How does this work? What happens now?
2: Well, what's happened now, Roy, is uh, we filed the necessary paperwork to request a trial date, uh, and uh, in a few weeks, a document will arrive to you and to me to tell us when the trial date is. And when that document arrives, I will order the disclosure. Now, the police have to disclose all their notes on this incident, and um, you have the—that's a constitutional right everybody has in this country. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go to traffic court not knowing they have that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as we get that, I write to the prosecutor's office and I uh, inform them I'm representing you. That you should already know I represent you, and they'll send me the disclosure, which are the officer's notes. And then that's when you and I have have another chat about uh, about the incident because we'll have the we'll have everything from the officer's point of view. Right. And then we uh, we can develop our defense. Uh, you know, I, I I don't have a crystal ball. I don't predict outcomes. Um, uh, we just go and do the best we can with with what we have to work for and my experience is um, in the times where the defendants are adamant that they're absolutely correct they end up being absolutely correct and uh, it just takes a, a little bit of airing of the issue and asking the right questions and uh having a, a
0: justice who's going to listen to us. You know, Doug, what I've done over the last couple of weeks since I got that ticket it was for $100. Um, I think with tax it comes to $100. Why they tax a ticket, I don't know, but anyway. Uh, so I, I've just monitored what I, how I drive when I come to a stop sign and tried so hard to make sure that I don't do anything differently, that I don't actually uh, make c- conscious, a conscious effort to stop. Just do my normal driving, and I stop at stop sign. So I'm more convinced now than I was the day that I got the ticket that I stopped at that stop sign. How, let me ask you this, how wise or how unwise is it for somebody to go to traffic court on their own and not be represented?
2: I think it depends on how savvy you are in in walking into an unknown situation. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Having said that, um, you know, most people who go to traffic court are more worried about the merit points uh, because it will infect their insurance uh, rate, right? And certainly, uh, where I practice, where most of my practice is, which is sort of in the four one six nine zero five area of Ontario, um, uh, you get the merit points, and the insurance companies start wringing their hands, thinking, "Oh, we're going to get more money here," right? It's all—it's all, it's all about—it's all about the money.
3: Yeah.
2: <clears throat> Sorry. So most people are interested in. Uh, yeah, I did it, uh, but how can I save my demerit points? Uh, in that kind of a situation, it's most of the time you can go in, you can speak with the prosecutor, and, and they'll work with you because uh, I'll be honest with you, Roy, uh, the traffic court, the, we're going to end up in a, a, going to court on a tier that runs about three hours, from 9 o'clock in the morning until noon. Mm-hmm. And on that tier will be as many as 40 uh defendants so if you did the math you've got 180 minutes available to you from nine to noon
0: about three minutes
2: yeah so how can everybody have a trial and all these matters are set for trial so how can everybody have a trial so where where they can work with people and and people can leave feeling that, that they got treated fairly uh you know it works in favor and those and at the end of the day, those who want to have a trial, there should be time left in the tier for them to have their trial.
0: Okay, and and uh, there, you told me there are three options in the province of Ontario, and I would imagine most of other provinces as well. But you, if you get a moving violation ticket or or any uh, ticket, you have three options. You can yeah. pay. You can pay the, the the fine as mandated, or you can yeah. do. What are the what? Are, obviously, traffic court is one of them. What's the other one?
2: The other option is called an early resolution meeting with the prosecutor. And you can have that in, uh, before you have a trial, right? And so you can go in and you can sit down and meet with the prosecutor for a few minutes. You can plead your case, and uh, you can. And, and if you, this is this is mainly for people who are interested in, in resolving the matter, not saying, listen, I didn't do this. Mm-hmm. For people who are adamant they didn't run the red light or they didn't cut that person off, an early resolution meeting is just a waste of time because. The prosecutors, they're, they're, they're called resolution meetings for a purpose. They want to get these things resolved, cleared up, and off the table.
0: Okay, let me ask you one other question. It has nothing to do sure. with me, this one. Okay. But there was a news story about a, a guy in Saskatchewan, in Regina, who is charged with driving through a construction zone at 183 kilometers an hour. Yes. The officer couldn't go get him. I mean, the guy was gone. But I guess they had license plate or something, somehow. They tracked him down. Right. So he's now facing obviously some serious issues. If that were in, uh, it, well, in most provinces, what are you looking at? Uh, suspension of license? And how expensive would this possibly get?
2: Well, in Ontario, that type of uh, driving, uh, if, if they charged you under the Highway Traffic Act and didn't charge you with dangerous driving, uh, so being charged under the Highway Traffic Act, it, it would be the, the case, uh, the offense of stunt driving. Now, the minimum fine for stunt driving is a $2,000 fine and six demerit points. You can get up to six months in jail for it. The fine, I believe, can go up to $10,000. And they can suspend your license for a minimum, for, for a maximum of two years, I believe.
0: Okay. So
2: so, so somebody like that uh, would attract would attract a higher range of uh, a penalty.
0: So this is serious business when you're doing that. You and I will be doing something that's serious, but... Uh, fairly routine for the traffic court, I would think. But I'm, I feel very strongly about this. I'm, I have no yeah. doubt. There isn't even a, a, a modicum of doubt that I yeah. that I stopped. If there were, I'd yeah. pay, take my lumps, and get on with my life. Absolutely. Doug, thank you so much for the time, and uh, I look forward can I, to... Can I
2: just want to add one thing? Sure. Okay. Uh, when I was a police officer, and I trained police officers, and I supervised police officers, our number one job, the number one thing we had to do, was make sure that we left for work, left work in the same shape we arrived. Yeah. And and today that's probably why a lot of these police cruisers look like Christmas trees for the amount of lights. It's it's one of the most dangerous things a police officer can do is is to actually get out on foot in a live lane of traffic. And that's why they would have all these lights on them.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate that, but it made my heart jump into my throat.
2: Well, I'm sure it did.
0: <laughs> thank you, Doug.
2: Okay, Roy. We'll see you soon. And, I'll be seeing uh, you soon. Uh, thanks, thanks you listeners. Have oh, a good day.
0: Thank you, sir. Doug Morton. On the Roy Green Show on the Coroner's Radio Network.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: On Tuesday, there was a report out from the Canadian Cancer Society, and uh, it got the attention of, well, everyone in this country. Nearly one out of two Canadians is expected to be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, and this year, more than 206,000 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancers, not including melanoma. Cancer is still the leading cause of death in this country. One in four Canadians will die from the disease. But there is some good news. Since cancer deaths peaked in 1988, more than 179,000 lives have been saved thanks to prevention and control efforts. And the five-year cancer survival rate has climbed from 25% in the 1940s to 60% today. We're going to talk about uh, the issue of cancer. Dr. David Palma is my guest. He's an oncologist. He's also a cancer researcher and author at uh, the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. Dr. Palma's new book is Taking Charge of Cancer, What You Need to Know to Get the Best Treatment. It'll be published on the 1st of July, so we get an advanced peek into the book. Patients need to be able to read their medical charts, must know how to double-check a doctor's recommendations, and understanding the difference between treatment, aimed at curing cancer, and those that slow it down are extremely important. Those are just some of the the piece of of advice that are in the book. Uh, Dr. Palmer, thank you very much for taking the time.
4: Thank you, Roy. Glad to be on the show. Uh,
0: Can you tell us what cancer is? Because, as I understand, what it isn't is one specific formulation of bad cells and illness, it's a major array of problems, is it not, or uh, across the board?
4: Uh, absolutely, that's exactly correct. The easiest way to think of cancer is just to think of the fact that our body is made up of many, many different cells. There are different cells in our brain, in our heart, cells in our lungs, all over the place, and all of those cells have little instructions, kind of like a computer would have code, and the cells follow the code and they're happy. But if something changes the code something like smoking, which causes a mutation, or sunlight, which causes mutations in our code, which is the DNA, the cells start to grow and grow and grow, and they can spread. And that's really how they become cancer. But every cancer is different. So a lung cancer is different than a breast cancer. And even within breast cancer, there are different types of breast cancers that will respond differently to treatment. And the crazy thing is, if you take one patient with cancer, let's say you have a patient with breast cancer, and you look at the cancer cells that are in the breast and the cancer cells that are in the lymph nodes, those ones might be different from each other even then and might respond differently to treatment. So cancer really is not just one disease. So we see that for some cancers, the response rates to treatment are really good. Some of the children's cancers and some of the the lymphomas are very, very curable, whereas other cancers, like pancreas cancer and I treat lung cancer, those cancers don't respond as well. So you're right, it's an array of problems.
0: Could you put into perspective for us, please, what it means when we hear that Nearly one in two Canadians is expected to be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Because what I've heard some people say to me is, well, that means 50% of Canadians get a death sentence. That's not the case.
4: No, that's not the case at all. And there's a bit of, um, you have to think about exactly what they mean by that. And that means over the course of their whole lifetime. So if you were to live to age 90, then your chance of getting cancer would be one in two. And really, cancer is a disease that happens more commonly as we get older. Age is one of the biggest risk factors for cancer. So if you live in a society where, let's say, people don't live beyond 40 or 50 years old, where infection is a big problem, let's say there's no clean water, there are no vaccinations, then people with a life expectancy into their 40s and 50s, cancer isn't a big problem. But as we've tackled many of the other problems in society in Canada and in the U.S. and in Europe, cancer comes to the forefront as we're living longer.
0: How does a cancer researcher decide what to put in a book?
4: Yeah, you know, there are lots and lots of books about cancer, and certainly I wouldn't want to spend a couple of years writing a book if it had already been done. But really what happened with this book a couple of years ago is that my best friend was diagnosed with cancer, not a cancer that I treat. And when he was diagnosed and I looked through what was out there for cancer patients, I realized that we weren't really going far enough with the type of literature that we have. So if you have breast cancer, for example... You can read about the different treatments for breast cancer. You can have surgery and then radiation and maybe, maybe some chemotherapy, but there's really nothing in there about how to get good treatment. And there's nothing in there that tells you that, wait a second, the chances of success are variable depending on where you get your treatment. As an example, if someone has pancreas cancer, so the pancreas is an organ in the belly. That's what Patrick Swayze had. Depending on your choice of hospital to have your surgery, if you go to a hospital in the U.S. that does a lot of pancreas surgeries, your chance of dying after surgery from a complication is 4%, which is a modest risk, something that we try to try to lower, but it's 4%. If you go to a place where they don't do the surgery very frequently, your chance of dying after surgery is 16%, four times the chance. So patients just don't realize that the quality of your treatment can make a really big difference. So when my friend was diagnosed a few years ago, I went through a series of steps with him, and, and then I realized that Everybody can do this. You don't need to have an oncologist as your best friend to take these steps.
0: Yeah, I think the case with uh, when you're diagnosed with cancer and and you have far more experience dealing with patients uh, than I do, but I, I I imagine the case is when you hear the word and you know that you have cancer, and then it's explained to you what kind of cancer you have, and you immediately formulate an idea of just how serious this is, you then want to put yourself in the hands of the people who've diagnosed you and the people who are going to treat you. You want to trust them 100%. Your book says your responsibility is to yourself and take charge of your cancer and and uh, make sure that you get the best treatment. So let's start with you've been diagnosed with, with cancer. You've gotten over the initial
4: tremendous shock. What do you do? Well... The, the first step is to take some time and, and realize that nothing needs to be decided immediately. You don't have to decide anything with a few, within a few days. There is usually, apart from some emergencies, enough time to take stock of the situation. And, you know, you say t- putting your trust into your practitioners. You know, normally that will work out well, but it, it doesn't always. And that's why we have these issues in oncology. You know, you have these, these stories in the media where a couple of women in Windsor a few years ago had mastectomies, they had their breasts removed, and and there was no cancer in the breast. There was a misread of of the report. So I kind of make the analogy of a pilot. Let's say you're a pilot. You're flying your plane, you've got people on board, and your navigation system goes down. And air traffic control, they say to you, okay, turn here, turn here, land here. But you know that occasionally air traffic control makes a mistake. My question would be, would you just trust air traffic control, or would you also pull out your own map? and double check what air traffic control is saying and that's what this book is trying to tell people so the first thing i say as part you know when you're diagnosed is get a copy of your records and sit down and, and try to understand them and this book takes you through exactly how do you understand your records how are these structured and why is it so important because everything flows from that if the if the correct tests are done and, and ev- everything's been done properly then you'll have a great understanding of where to go. But if something is missed or something is overlooked on the scan, then that's what can lead to mistakes.
0: So this is why you should be able to read your chart.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we, we read all kinds of things that are different. A few, a few uh, months ago, a dishwasher broke, and, and my wife told me to call the dishwasher repair person because I could not repair anything technical. But I went on YouTube, and I looked at the manual, and I watched a video, and I, lo and behold, fixed the dishwasher reading something that was completely foreign to me. Same with cars. I don't know much about cars. I can't fix my own car. But in this day and age, people can learn. We're used to going online. We're used to being able to do these kind of things. And with the resources in the book, I take people through different records. This is how you understand a scan report. This is how you understand a pathology report, which is a biopsy specimen. And this is where you look to see if you have lung cancer. Here are the tests that need to be done. A lot of times, doctors aren't doing all the tests required to see where the cancer has spread. And other times they do too many tests. So if a a patient comes with a prostate cancer, which can be detected with PSA, if it's only a, a high PSA and everything else seems okay, you don't need to actually scan the patient. But many, many doctors do, and that leads to red herrings, which can cause some problems. So basically what I'm trying to do is empower patients to really take control of their situation.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.
0: Dr. Palmer, so reading your chart, understanding your chart, gives you a heads up on what's happening to you. It also then provides you with knowledge and probably questions that you want to answer or want answered. How do you though, as a patient, approach your oncology team? How do you approach the doctor? What do you do if you want to double check the doctor's recommendations? What do you what do you suggest to the patient?
4: Absolutely. Many people have the same kind of concern. They wonder, if I bring my questions up to my doctor, what are they going to think? Are they going to feel threatened? But I just want to reassure everybody that medicine isn't what it was in the 1960s where it was this paternalistic approach and people felt that the patient should be told what to do and the patient should listen if they were a good patient. It's totally different. It's more a give and take. And when patients come to me with questions like this, questions related to the book, and a few patients now have been able to get copies and come in and ask me questions from the book, I'm actually quite impressed. And they'll ask, they'll ask are you guys a high-volume center? Meaning, do you do this type of treatment all the time? And what I realize then is that the patient really is a partner. They are really looking for the best care. And so as a doctor, I wouldn't feel threatened. I, I would feel that if I am providing a really good service, and I would be proud as a doctor. And I'd say, listen, yes, we are. We specialize in this. And if not, then I would make a referral to somebody who does. But I think that the feeling of medicine has changed, and we really see our patients as partners, or many of us do see our patients as partners in this journey. I always use this example. I say to my patients, especially when they're making a difficult decision, I say, you're the driver, and I'm the passenger. I'm sitting here with a map. I can tell you which way to go, turn right, turn left, but it's ultimately your decision. And so the days of paternalistic medicine, I hope, are gone.
0: Some doctors are more approachable than others. And then patients run into that. And, and I, I remember that situation uh, with, with my wife's case. And we talked a little bit about that before we went on the air. Um, so there are resources available, though, right? As you point out in the book, there are resources available. You can, you can double check on, on the doctor's recommendation without necessarily confronting the doctor.
4: Absolutely. And so there are a few ways to do this. So I go through different ways of getting second opinions, and some of them are free, which is important in healthcare systems where things aren't free, um, although most of the things in Canada are covered. But you can go online. Once you have your medical records and you know the details about your cancer, most importantly, the stage. The stage of your cancer tells doctors where the cancer is and how far it has spread. So if you have a lung cancer and it's stage one, that tells us that, It's only in the lungs. A stage 4 lung cancer has spread elsewhere in the body. And the treatments depend on the stage. Treatments that are appropriate for stage 1 cancer may not be appropriate for stage 3 or stage 4. But once you know your type of cancer and your stage, you can go online and say, okay, these are actually the recommended treatments for this type of stage based on guidelines that are out there. Just like I was telling you before, I could look up how to fix my dishwasher. Those guidelines are out there, but people just don't know where to look. But even then, let's imagine the worst-case scenario, because this could happen. You're faced with a doctor who you really just don't feel you can bring your concerns to, and you feel like if you bring something up to them, then something's going to go wrong, you're going to damage your patient-physician relationship. There's a back channel. You go back to your family doctor, ask for a referral to a second cancer doctor, and say to that cancer doctor, listen, I'm here for a second opinion, and if you don't mind, please don't send a note from this encounter to my first oncologist because I just want to have a little private second opinion just to reassure myself. And this does happen occasionally when people don't want to, let's say, ruffle any feathers. But what I say is that you know, ruffling a few feathers, if it has to happen, isn't the end of the world because in the end, the important thing is that people get the best quality of care. And if you don't feel that you have the ability to bring things up, with your doctor at the beginning. What are you going to do when there's a complication or right. something serious?
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned going online. Now, whenever we talk about cancer on this program, there are those well-meaning people who will tell you that online they've read about this miraculous cure or this miraculous approach. They've seen it on Twitter. They've seen it on Facebook. Maybe this is what you should try. How do you separate the, um, the worthwhile from the, from the worthless?
4: Absolutely. And it's difficult. It's hard for us as doctors to really get the message out there because there are so many other people, and you can really write a website about anything. You can say that you took coffee and chocolate chip cookies and and it it was successful. You could write that and and, and it would be online. As part of the book, I do have a chapter on separating myths from truths And what I've done with the book, because I know that some people might find some of the steps daunting, like getting your medical records, is I've made a set of videos online a toolkit. And one of those videos is about separating myths from truth. And I go through three different things that patients asked me about, and I show the viewer, how do I differentiate what is fact and what is fiction?
0: I just received a, a tweet from, uh, from a listener saying, when it comes to charts, how can you read your charts when everything's uh, computerized now? That's an interesting point.
4: That's a, that's a great. That's a great point. So, if you're really lucky, some of the hospitals with computerized charts they will they have a portal where patients can log in. But there are a few strategies to, to to get your charts. Even the places that have computerized charts are required if you ask in Canada and the U.S. to give you a copy of your charts. And you don't need your whole chart. You don't need to have the X-rays from when you fell off your bike a few years ago. You just need the pertinent parts. But they will print that out for you. At our our center, they go to a special health records area, they sign a few forms. There is a small fee, but there are ways around that that I talk about in the book. So there may be a small fee, but then you get them in a paper copy. But if you're lucky with the computerized systems, often you can log in through a patient portal and even see some results in real time.
0: All right, so we heard that uh, almost half of Canadians will hear a cancer diagnosis for themselves in their lifetime. It doesn't uh, necessarily mean that it's a death sentence. What it does mean is that you should take charge of your own cancer, take charge of your own situation as much as possible. Dr. Palma's book is Taking Charge of Cancer, What You Need to Know to Get the Best Treatment. And uh, is that, is it out now?
4: It's going to be out July 1st. July 1st, I'm looking forward to bringing my kids to the bookstore and showing them dad's book.
0: Well, I think there'll be a lot of people buying it because it's incredibly important that you are in charge and you feel in charge. I think you tend to get better, faster that way. Thank you, Dr. Palma.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Dr. David Palma on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: It is uh, called the shot that was heard around the world, and it has been heard around the world. And it's been talked about globally as a Joint Task Force 2 sniper, Canadian counterterrorism um, unit, military unit, special forces unit, took a 3540 meters shot. 3,540 meters, 2.1 miles, and uh, killed an ISIS terrorist. And it's just such a remarkable, remarkable achievement, more than a, about 1,000 a meters further than the previous world record for a sniper. And we've heard about the fact that they had to calculate the curvature of the world or the earth in order to take this shot. Who are the JTF-2 snipers? Who are Who's in JTF-2? How do you become a, m- a member of JTF-2? What do you have to be able to do? Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, a retired former commanding officer of Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit, uh, joins us now. He's the founder and president of the premium security solutions provider firm Reticle, and that's Reticle.com. Colonel Day, good to talk to you.
5: Roy, pleasure to be back with you, sir.
0: Uh, reticle.com. Not that reticle has anything to do with, uh, with, with sighting a a shot. It's a joke.
5: (laughs) Yes, but it's funny you mention that because obviously looking through that scope, the pattern that you see through a sniper scope or a camera lens, is called a reticle pattern.
0: So share with us, please. What are your thoughts about that shot that was taken? Uh, what's, what's your reaction and, and who are these snipers? What, what makes somebody a, uh, a sniper, what, what, what qualities do you have to have to be able to do what they do?
5: Well, right, so to start with the qualities to become a sniper, you have to be extremely patient and have a high degree of uh, perseverance built in to absorb uh, a bit of punishment of the elements. So it is not uncommon for snipers to get what's called into a sniper hide and be there for multiple hours or days as they get fit as they get set and watch the environment around them and pass information back to higher levels of command and then other maneuver units that the sniper element may be supporting so to be a sniper you really have to have a a significant degree of patience and then just calmness about your demeanor
0: and uh this shot in particular can you explain to us how it would have been would have been taken because there's a a great deal of drop that bullet would drop a tremendous amount would it not over 2.1 miles And what has to be calculated? What goes into taking this shot?
5: Well, absolutely. So first of all, this shot in particular was shot from a a higher elevation. So that adds another degree of uh, difficulty when you're up in an apartment building or, you know, just off the normal um, lay of the land because there's another degree of precision you need to work through.
6: But at the end of the day,
5: it's, it's uh, it's a team sport, if you will. You've got your spotter who's out there looking and adjusting and calling for fire if you happen to miss. You clearly have the shooter, and then when you're out 3.5 kilometers, you have another, another number of factors to worry about. Wind, curvature of the earth, as you already talked about, and in the heat of the Middle East, all the mirage that comes off of the ground, you've got to try and adjust for all of that as well. It, it's a very, very impressive shot that uh, we've just seen executed.
0: And Canadian snipers have a, a history of being very good at this particular skill.
5: Yes, uh, three three of the five longest recorded shots currently are held by Canadians.
0: There's so much uh, urban legend uh, Colonel Day about special forces. Um what are the what are the basic character traits that an individual has to have in order to become a member of Joint Task Force 2. Let's say you've joined the military, you've done the prerequisites, you've, you're now applied to become a member of JTF2. We've all seen the, the movies and the TV series about becoming members of Special Forces units, but in reality, what, what's most necessary?
5: What, what's most necessary is having the right balance between maturity, physical fitness, and the ability to be a cognitive warrior. Being in being, 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 being a, being a, being a situation and making the right decisions under uh, a very stressful environment and not having all the information. So you don't have to be the fittest individual in the Army, as an example, but you need to be well above average. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the military, but you have to be well above average. And then lastly, you don't have to be the most driven, but you have to be well above average. And by those those three legs of the stool make you a very unique uh, individual. It's like driving a, a Formula One car, for example, or a brain surgeon. There's a number of different attributes, personal attributes that those people have that allow them to rest at that pinnacle of their profession.
0: We talked a few months ago about how to handle um, terror groups like ISIS. And if I recall correctly, you suggested one of the ways that it could be done would be to allow special forces units or counterterrorism units like Joint Task Force 2 to go out and do what they do best. Let them go out in, in, in small units and essentially let them go and do what they do. Um, is that, am I under, do I remember this correctly? And would this situation in Iraq maybe have been that kind of situation?
5: Yes, absolutely, uh, Roy. When you look at what's going on right now in the battle for Mosul, which has been going on now for months, this is exactly where special operations are optimized. It's what's known as a low intensity fight it's not big maneuver elements like armies on armies it is small insurgent cellular organizations that require a cellular approach to be able to get in there and help root them out get in front of the problem and then to stand off 3.5 kilometers and and strike them where they don't even know that it's coming they don't even know the direction it's coming from or the fact that you've been able to deliver a lethal blow at a significant standoff direction. This is exactly where special operations is is optimized in the contemporary contemporary threat environment.
0: What's the impact on the other side? What's the impact on the terrorists? Once this shot has been taken, once they realize from where it was taken or how long a shot it's been, what does it do to them?
5: Well, the nice thing is it, it starts to now shift the momentum, if you will, around. They're not sure they want to come outside that building. They may not be sure... They want to move from one hiding location to another hide location. So it's, it's very psychologically powerful. When you think you may be hiding somewhere, and all of a sudden one of your, your uh, comrades is, is struck from out of the blue, it is psychologically very, very difficult on an adversary.
0: Let me ask you uh, about you. What are the challenges, maybe the lifetime benefits, of being the commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2? First of all, it has to be a source of great pride.
5: No, it's a, yeah, it's a personally a source of tremendous pride to have had the opportunity to lead um, what I often characterize as, as Canada's gold medal Olympic winning Stanley Cup champion a hockey team. It's the, it's the best analogy I can give from a Canadian perspective, um, and it just goes to show you, irrespective of what field, as I mentioned before, if you arm Canadians with the right knowledge and you equip them and you allow them to train. There's nothing in the world we as Canadians cannot do and be the best in the game at doing. But we've got to be given the opportunity and the resources to do those things. So I am personally extremely proud to have served in uh, the Special Operations Committee for over a decade and for the men and women that continue to serve today and are walking point for us halfway around the world.
0: How much uh, hands-on would you have had as the commanding officer as far as what these uh, units, the smaller units that are out in the field doing what they do, how much hands-on would you have had?
5: Well, myself, once you become the commanding officer, as you move up in in rank, quite honestly, I I get paid to assess risk. I get paid to ensure that the men and women have the appropriate training, and uh, I get paid to make the hard decisions when we're trying to resolve a a certain challenge. But in terms of hands-on day-to-day, as you move up as a senior officer, you have a lot less hands-on. Clearly, you still have a lot of those skills, but I would argue... I would not be as current or as proficient as a lot of my, my brothers there at JTF2 right now.
0: So what are the skills that uh, that are developed? When when you, you leave your, the unit that you're in, you've been uh, accepted into Joint Task Force 2, what are the things that you learn? For example, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, you had just completed uh, two days of driving instructions for... Uh, I don't know if it was an arm of the government or somebody in the private sector, and and they had learned how to drive a vehicle under the most extremely stressful situations. What are the what's the what does some of the training involve?
5: Yes, yeah, so um, currently, you know, so I, I spent over a decade in the special operations community, another decade in the wider Canadian Army, and uh, what I like to do, and with a number of folks that have now retired as well, is we're looking to give back and just support the Canadian forces and other national security actors from a different foxhole, if you will. So when you've got 20 or 30 years of experience, which takes you 20 or 30 years to get, it would be awfully nice to be able to hand off to the next generation some of those hard lessons that we learned through the decade of, dark, uh, decade of darkness of the 90s and then through a number of different things we did in the, in the 2000s in Afghanistan and other places around the world. So it just it takes a long time to get all that experience and, and hopefully wisdom paired up with the experience. And I I believe that to continue to to serve this country best, um, I'm I'm trying to keep together a number of graybeards, as we would call them, the the older generation who've retired, but still have a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, ability to pass those those skills, knowledges, and abilities to the younger generation.
0: And this is what radical is about.
5: It's one of the things we do within radical, yes, sir.
0: So, um... What uh, I, I wanted to ask you this question, I don't know quite how how to ask it, but let me just use the word that that I hear uh, time and again when people talk about special forces units. And of course, there's a g- great deal of attention paid because every any time there's a special forces film or something on TV, any man watching becomes the guys on the screen. You know, you you want to be you want to be there. Are they Superman? Are these are these are these s- these soldiers? Are they capable of, of, um, of, of action and completing tasks that the average person just could not do?
5: Well, I would say they're absolutely. Um, they're trained to do a number of things that the average person is not trained or to do. But I think the number one discriminator, quite honestly, is, is that ability to drive on and achieve mission success when you are by yourself and you're not sure what's going on around you. And that is one of the big attributes that we look for. People who have an, an unquenchable desire to succeed with the task they are given at hand and to pursue excellence in everything that they are doing. And that, that is the biggest differentiator. You're given a task, and you're expected to execute that task 100% of the time to 100% um, you know, uh, accuracy all by yourself. And that's what we expect of the special operations community.
0: And regardless of the circumstances that surround you.
5: Regardless of the circumstance, if you are the last man standing, you are expected to drive on to to accomplish that mission. You're
1: listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
5: I always
0: feel it's a privilege to speak with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit. He's the founder and president of the premium security solutions provider firm Reticle, and that's Reticle.com online. Colonel Day, uh, is it fair to assume that the sniper who took the shot... By the way, will we ever know who it is?
5: Uh, I do not believe we will uh, ever know who that is. Possibly after the member retires. But for the most part, um, Joint Task Force 2, their members, and a lot of their operations are, are, are all classified for operational security reasons. Because the last thing we want to do is put this young man's name out there in the public and his partner so that somebody in 10 or 15 or 20 years may be able to find him on the Internet and find and uh, bring harm to his family.
0: Yeah, I found it unusual that the uh, the other longest shots, so the other world records for snipers, they named the sniper, they named the country and the unit that he was with, and I found that very unusual. But um... Well,
5: it's, it's, yeah, sometimes unusual because those are wider Army things. Yeah, ideally, should, should we be talking about it? You know what? We should not. We should be finding a way to celebrate this appropriately. But based on the Internet, um, you know, and what we're seeing in a very information-hungry world these days, what we end up creating, unfortunately, is a little bit of a risk profile for that, like I said, that wider family, which is why in JTF2, operation security is paramount.
0: Is it fair to assume that he's made longer shots than that or shots just as long – Shooting at at uh, inanimate targets.
5: Uh, yes, um, and again, you you need to understand like a fifty caliber Tac McMillan uh, sniper rifle. That round will actually travel almost six kilometers.
3: Wow! So when
5: you if, if you were <laughs> to shoot that fifty caliber round, oh, the danger template on a fifty caliber round is almost six kilometers. So. You don't normally train out to that, that distance, quite honestly, because after a certain uh, number of meters, you you lose the what we would call the stopping power, uh, the kinetic energy of that round. So, you know, it, it's not unusual to be training in the 2- the to 3-kilometer band because you still have a lot of stopping power in that 50-caliber 50, uh, 50 round, as we've seen.
0: Yeah, and the rifle itself, if you were to take that rifle and compare that uh, that particular rifle to a high-powered hunting rifle. What are we talking about? Sedan versus Formula One car?
5: Well, yes, because like, like I said earlier, it's also the spotter. It's the scope. Right. There's uh, software that helps you account for wind and, like I said, uh, elevation changes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not only all the equipment. What, what gets lost in here, there's a bunch of science to shooting at that distance, but it is still truly an art because if that, if that sniper flinches ever so much on the trigger pull, that round will go tens and tens of meters off target when you're down three kilometers downrange.
0: You know, I was it I was
5: truly an art.
0: I was asking uh, the studio operator whether I should tell you the story that I shared with our beauties. Uh, we do a beauties and the beast thing on Saturdays with Linda Rath- Leatherdale, Catherine Swift, and Michelle Simpson. I told them when I was on the Naval Reserve in my late teens, we went to Collège Royal Militaire Saint Jean and went to the range and we had we got a sniper training I guess. they just put us through a bunch of things you know you know how it is better than I do and uh, and so i was lying in a prone position i had a target to shoot at and i was going to be told when to shoot i thought i was perfectly still perfectly calm i was going to shoot between breaths you know get your breath under control get your heart rate down i was all set i was all pumped i thought i was going to be the next 3000 meter shooter and then i felt this steel cap boot in my spine and i heard you got a dead you're dead. You're dead. You're moving so damn much. Why don't you just get up and wave to the enemy?
5: <laughs> Absolutely, like I said, there there is an art that marries up nicely with the science that's really, right. what is truly mastercraft.
0: Yeah, that we're so proud of uh, of our military. We're so proud of the men and the women in the military who volunteer and who will put their lives on the line. and Do put their lives on the line every day with the rest of us. And I was going to ask you about the political responses, but we'll leave that out. Colonel Day, it's uh, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you for your service to this country. We're coming up to our 150th birthday, and you've made it a much more secure nation for, for all of us. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, Roy. And uh, on that note, all the best to your listeners there as we approach the 150th uh, anniversary celebrations of a truly outstanding nation. So all the best. We will talk again, I'm sure.
0: I look forward to it. Thank you, Colonel Day. All the best. Bye-bye. Colonel Steve Day, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the retired commanding officer of Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit, and his company now is Radical.com. And that Chief Petty Officer, O'Sullivan, I will never forget that dude. He never spoke. He almost yelled. But we're so proud of, of our military. They are literally protecting us. Sh- saving our lives.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, Dawn Ray Downton and her husband and pain researcher Bob Hagginson join me now. Dawn Ray has been on this program, as you know. She's a journalist and um, chronic pain patient, and she's revealed on this program that she has a suicide plan in place if her fentanyl is significantly reduced or withheld. And that her husband is aware. So I, I was thinking the other day, isn't that just the most incredibly um, unfortunate and inappropriate and inexcusable pressure to place people under? And yet it's the reality and it's the fact for Don Ray and her husband, Bob um, Hagginson. Don Ray, it's good to speak with you again. And uh, hello, Bob.
6: Good to speak with you again
0: too. You know that I'm hearing from doctors now. They're starting to um, increasingly want to speak out, and they're. I think I think this is going to just continue to grow. This swell is continuing to grow, and and your op-eds in the Globe and Mail a few weeks ago, and then this past week in in the Ottawa Citizen, also making a a, a significant impact. You're the patient. Um, would you remind us, please, of what it is, because we have new listeners all the time. Would you remind us, please, of what it is that you're facing? What are you living with?
6: Well, I have a, a kind of rare form of inflammatory arthritis that um, puts me in pain through my entire body, in significant, severe pain. Um, I got it about 20 years ago, and I just fumbled my way uh, eventually into a pain clinic. Uh, and they tried me on everything that pain clinics and doctors try their pain patients on, avoiding going to pharmacological um, uh, methods um, until the until everything else has failed and everything did fail for me i had nerve blocks i had trigger point injections i had infusions i did group therapy i took uh, anti-inflammatories i took anti-convulsants nothing worked eventually they started me on a small dose of fentanyl and it just changed my life i got my life back Um, i got the life back that i had been missing for eight years when i was in this terrible pain and so I've been on fentanyl ever since and thought nothing much about it until last spring. It was toward the end of the spring. And I, I just noticed the news one day. I noticed that someone was saying that chronic pain patients and their doctors were responsible for uh, the opioid street deaths in Vancouver, which were starting to mount up. And I thought, what? What are they talking about? And I just thought, well, you know, we'll, that'll go away. The news, the news cycle is pretty short, and that will go away, but it didn't. I, I just kept hearing it night after night after night. It was in every paper every day, um, and it, it has been every day in some media in the country since then. So it's been going on for a whole year, and then I thought, last summer, this is not going to be good. When I went to see my doctor in the fall, she, uh, my, my GP, who had been writing my prescriptions for fentanyl under the supervision of my pain doctor, at another pain clinic, uh, my GP said something about, well, you know, we should probably start to think about weaning you off that. And I thought, oh God, here we go. So I just waited for the ax to fall and it fell um, just after Christmas when she told me that she would no longer be able to, to write prescriptions for me for opioids of any kind. Luckily, I had the pain clinic to go back to and so I did go back to them, and they've taken care of me ever since. However, it's just one thing after another with me, I guess. Um, my pain doctor at the pain clinic appears to be going to retire probably by the, at the end of the summer. So I don't know what I will do. Uh, there is no plan. I have a plan because I know that I cannot live in the kind of pain that I was living in 12 years ago before I went on fentanyl. There's no possible way that anybody could live through that kind of pain. It would be pointless. All your life, all your world is the pain. So I have a plan. Um, Nobody else in the medical community has a plan for me, but I have a suicide plan, and I will carry it out if I have to, if I can't think of anything else to do.
0: Bob, as you hear your wife, who you love, talk about this, and you're aware of this plan. You've been aware of it from the beginning, I would think. Um, I have. What are you feeling, what do you want to say to the people who are, it appears, intent on uh, on removing possibly Don Ray and have removed others in excruciating pain from their opioids? But what do you want to say specifically about what's going on, what's happening to your wife?
3: Well, personally, I'm frightened. Uh, you know when someone you love is is essentially on death row uh, because that's what it comes down to uh, uh, I'm frightened, I feel helpless um, I'm angry uh, I cannot believe that uh, you know uninformed bureaucrats are taking a position like this and inflicting this kind of misery on uh, not just individuals but families, and they are. Well, it, I'll tell you, um, around here, uh, like I say, it's it's like living with someone on death row because you never know from one day to the next uh, where this is going to end.
0: You know, I, I read the, um, the email from the pain doctor, or not the pain doctor, the uh, ER doc, and uh, he wrote, in part, 75-year-old patient on OxyNeo, a stable dose for 17 years, for severe osteoarthritis, told by their GP that they were afraid of the college and that they would no longer prescribe the patient's narcotic. No attempt to wean, or give meds to help with withdrawal. When that happens, and Don Ray, you're you're willing to to speak to to all of this, and as you've, you've told me, um, in a letter that you wrote to Philpot, I'm not going quietly. I'm naming names. Who stops the list? Mm-hmm. Um, do you see yourself in in the shoes of that? Of that patient, I just I to
6: I, 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 I do. Um, you know, I'm younger. Um, my life will be cut short in a way that it shouldn't be. I can't get over the stupidity of the whole thing, but um, there's nothing that I apparently can do about it. I have been a working journalist all my life, all my adult life. The only thing I can think to do personally is to try and get the story out so that other people will be motivated to speak to this issue and that enough momentum will be built that we can turn this issue and get the government policy changed but the problem is that pain patients are extremely reluctant to speak out we have been stigmatized for being on opioids particularly fentanyl um, and our doctors tell us to be discreet to be discreet to be discreet Um, And then the doctors themselves are unwilling to speak out. I mean, you can't imagine how thrilled I've been that you got Dr. Lynn Webster to speak and uh, today Dr. Redmond to speak. I I only hope that more doctors who know how how wrong this is, I only hope that they will save us, that they will save me and all of the other chronic pain patients in Canada. Bob has the stats. He knows the numbers. That's his thing, numbers. I, I don't know what the numbers are as well as he does, but... Somebody needs to save us. We are productive members of, of Canada of the Canadian society and we should not be this should not be happening to us. And and there's no purpose to it. There's not going to be any result to it. If anything, the street death picture will get worse because there will be those among us once they're cut, once we're cut off our our medications who will go and try and find some on the street. I mean, it's possible that Bob might go out and hunt me down a drug dealer. I don't know if he's going to be able to get me a fentanyl patch, but, um, you know, I've got to do something. Uh, I've got to turn over every rock before I die.
0: And it's so unnecessary. All they have to do is recognize that for 12 years the fentanyl has helped you. It's given you some quality of life. It's led you, uh, allowed you to live, you and Bob, to live uh, uh, in, in, a, in a happy marriage and, uh, in a, and a, have, a, have a, a, a good life. And just by saying, well, I'm sorry, but uh, you're cut off, we know what the result of that is. And there was a news story earlier today about a woman in her 60s in, uh, in Vancouver who was buying from a, a dealer because she'd been cut off. And uh, after knee surgery and tremendous pain, and the, I think the head of the college, or I'm sorry, I have to be careful. I don't want to misrepresent who this person was. But uh, said it it worse the effect. Now, here's the story. 60-year-old Vancouver resident Lorna Bird says she was forced to buy heroin and then cocaine from the street to deal with excruciating pain after knee surgery. Bird says she was prescribed the uh, opioid hydromorphone, which is five times more potent than morphine, after the surgery in December 2014. But she says the new drug standards led her doctor to wean her off, forcing her onto the street to spend $100 a day on cocaine. She's an example of what substance abuse experts or substance use experts say is the failure of updated national guidelines that aimed at preventing overuse of opioids without having strong alternative pain management strategies. Dr. Evan Wood, director of the BC Center on Substance Use, says people who haven't been prescribed opioids never should be, except in rare cases, but for people like Bird who are dependent on the drugs, stopping their prescription only causes even more problems. That's talking on both sides of your mouth at the same time. And, uh, and and then the line here, I mean, I'd, I'd like the reporter to do a little more work. Bird says she was prescribed the opioid hydromorphone, which is five times more than portent, uh, potent morphine. Well, if that's all you hear and you don't know much about it, you're going to say, oh, my God. Well, if you're the reporter, why don't you ask how much hydromorphone she was prescribed? Maybe it was just a minuscule amount.
6: Right.
0: Sorry, I get angry.
6: Well, I do, too. You know, and when I hear what, what you just read, the doctor said that no pain patient who hasn't been on opioids should ever go on them. To me, that's just rubbish. And I think to most of the medical community, they know that that's just rubbish. The best pain research that we have in Canada says that um, that fentanyl, and fentanyl actually is the best of the opioids because it is a slow, re- slow release over a long time sort of preparation. So you always have a steady uh, limit in your bloodstream. Uh, fentanyl is the gold standard for medicating pain. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an ideal situation that somebody who has acute pain then goes on to, to continue to use fentanyl, but in fact, that is not what is happening. Fentanyl is used in our hospitals every day for surgery, for um, uh, 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 investigations like endoscopies, colonoscopies, um, stuff that you have to be a bit sedated and put out of, uh, uh, and out of pain for. Um, so, you know, fentanyl is a very good drug. Um, and some people need it for acute pain, post-surgically they need it. What the statistics show is that there is no indication whatsoever that patients who are prescribed fentanyl or opioids for acute pain then go on to abuse it. They do not, they also do not sell it to the street. They need the medication for as long as they need it, and then when they can come off it, they do. Some people are in chronic pain. Many people in Canada are in chronic pain. It is miserable, and it is then appropriate to be on the best pain medication we have available to us to fix that, and that's fentanyl.
0: And stop using, uh, stop, uh, using statistics that uh, uh, relate to generic drug addicts and transpose them to uh to chronic pain patients stop doing that
1: mm-hmm. you're listening to the roy green show weekends from 2 to 5 on am 900 chml
0: just before i speak some more with Don ray and bob here's 24 seconds of my conversation with dr mary redmond and uh has to do with doctors leaving pain medicine care listen
6: but I'm seeing colleagues right now with this business, with our college here, there are colleagues who are being forced to stop practice or who are forcing, choosing to stop practicing pain medication management because of the, the, the drawn-out battle with the college. And these patients are going to be left high and dry. There will be nobody to look after them. I, it's, it's just a it's very, very sad mess.
0: Yes, it is. Bob, what are some of the statistics, some of the information that we need to know?
3: Uh, well, it's it's actually kind of scary, uh, but, you know, sometimes this is what it takes to put things into a little bit of perspective, put some, put some numbers on things. And from what I can tell, I, I keep hearing that about 20% of the population suffers from chronic pain. And uh, recently I've heard from uh, physicians on your show saying that it's more like 25 or 30 percent but let's just be conservative and stick with the 20 percent uh... if you take away the under-20 group for example that leaves you with about 5.6 million people that are suffering from chronic pain and what i've suggested is that once they're cut off from their treatment about one percent of those people are going to take their own lives Uh, and i think that's ridiculously conservative Uh, a statistician is going to tell you that if those people are all suffering from the same degree of pain, obviously some will be slightly worse, some will be slightly better, Uh, realistically about 2.8 million of them uh, have a 50% chance of of killing themselves in short order. Now, taken to its natural extreme, uh, 5.6 million people could theoretically, uh, unlikely but not impossible, take their lives. Now, uh, in the last 80 years, I only know of one time where a government-sanctioned policy or program directly resulted in the death of about 6 million people, and that's what you're looking at.
0: That's an indictment. That is an
6: indictment. Well, it should be an indictment. It's appropriate. I mean, we just we just should not be put in this position. There's no... there's If the government should needs, not. needs optics, then it should, you know, at least go and address the problem correctly and not scapegoat us.
0: And it's happening in Canada. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Australia. I got the email from the patient in Sydney. Everybody's terrified. And as Dr. Redmond said, it is so unnecessary. It is absolutely unnecessary. But are they going to back away from this? Who knows? Will it be worse in a year? Dr. Redmond fears it might.
6: There's a might. lot of pushback, I think, from um, the medical, from some of the medical community and from government on this. I just, I watch what happens in the news and on the college sites, and I'm already seeing that there's pushback to people like me speaking out. So it's going to be a fight. I don't know if I'm going to be around for it.
0: Well, there are lots of people who are standing up. There, I'm, I'm getting emails and seeing tweets uh, from listeners saying, "Boy, I have a different perspective on this whole story now. This whole issue." So people are paying attention and they care and this makes it more problematic for the people with uh, with the with the, uh, with the with the wrong spin with the unacceptable spin on the issue don ray uh, it's always good talking to you we're going to stay in touch we'll continue this fight and bob you too thank you sir and uh, wish you both the very best
6: thank you roy You're
0: and i'm no not just saying that take care thanks. thanks bye
1: the roy green show weekends from 2 to 5 on am 900 chml